just sang, especially set to the Irish music, there are just certain songs that seem to take on a meditative quality when you sing them in a minor key. I especially like it if they're played on a cello. I don't know what it is about the mellow sound of a cello and an Irish tune, but it can just create a great environment for some meditation on the words of our hymns. That has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk talk about tonight. Sometimes when somebody gets up to preach, you just hope they do get to what they're going to say. Reminds me of the preacher that said, before I start to preaching, I have something to say. Think about it, you'll get it later on. As we open our Bibles tonight, we're going to go to Luke chapter 1. We have been looking at the truth about the incarnation the last couple of weeks, again next week. Actually, uh, not next week, the first Sunday night in December, a series of messages on the incarnation to set our minds in uh, the right direction for uh, thinking of this season of the year. We, we have Christmas coming up on our Western calendars. Um, we're not even going to get into the debate about when Jesus was born, but let's just say he probably was not born on December 25th, but that's Okay. I don't know about you, I need reminders of things from time to time. So I think it's good for us to have a reminder on our calendar to think about the Incarnation. And uh, so as we go through some of these passages, we looked at Micah with Pastor Steve and a couple of the prophetic uh, passages with regard to the coming of Christ. As we go to the end of the Old Testament and the book of Malachi, some 400 years before Christ, roughly, we enter into a time of silence. That is, silence from God. It's actually the second time in history when there was 400 years of silence in the biblical text. The first time when there was a 400-year silence was between the books of Genesis and Exodus. The book of Genesis ends with the blessing of God upon the people of Israel that is, the 70 descendants of Israel, their spouses and grandchildren of Israel, Jacob, and how they settled into Egypt under the blessing of the Pharaoh through Joseph and all that God had done through Joseph. God had, two generations before, told Abraham that his descendants were going to be in Egypt for 430 years. That's a long time. That's a lot of generations. That's a long time to forget a lot of things. 400 years of silence when, as far as we know, God did not reveal anything to the Israeli people who were, by the time a few generations had gone by, they were, found themselves as slaves in Egypt, pressed into hard labor, a very disagreeable Situation, a very stressful and difficult and challenging life, and certainly no one would want their children to have to continue to endure that. And the people were crying out to God, crying out to God, crying out to God, probably for generations. 
and it seemed as though God was not hearing. But the book of Exodus tells us that God was hearing. He was listening to the cries of his people. And so he answered a 400-year silence by sending a baby. The broken silence was broken by the cry of a woman in labor and the birth of a baby boy. His name was Moses. But the people didn't know yet that God had broken the silence. They did not yet know that God had come down to intervene for them on their behalf. It was going to be another 80 years. Another 80 years before Moses comes back on the scene. Now, you and I would say that by the time Moses was 80 years old, he was past his prime. He lived to be 120, so you, you work that out. You figure that out. <clears throat> he probably wasn't as spry as he had been. Let's just put it that way. Isn't it just like God to answer a problem by giving a helpless child? Or a man past his prime? The second 400-year silence is after the book of Malachi. The people of Israel had fallen into such wretched sin, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, that God had brought other nations in to destroy them both. He destroyed the northern kingdom with the Assyrians, and those Jewish people were scattered all over the known world, and most of them never came back to Israel. The southern kingdom of Judah was later captured and conquered and uh, physically demolished by the Babylonians, and many of those people were carried away to Babylon, including Daniel and a number of other people, Ezekiel and so on. Others fled and went to Egypt. Jeremiah was taken to Egypt. And the people there suffered for 70 years of exile because of their sins, because of their disobedience to God. And after 70 years... There was a decree that they could return, just like God had prophesied that there would be. And so the people started to come back into the land. But it was only a handful of people that came back. It was, they guess, maybe 40 or 50,000 at the most came back to Israel. So probably 90-plus percent of the Jewish people of the world did not live in Israel anymore. And the ones who did found opposition on every side. They found difficulties. They found things torn apart, demolished, broken. They found strangers living in their cities. They found Gentiles in the land. They were greatly overwhelmed. And the prophets, among others, Haggai and Malachi, came along to encourage the people that God yet had a plan, that God yet had a plan for His people, that God would yet use them and glorify the city of Jerusalem, and he would yet bring a kingdom to Jerusalem. But after Malachi passed away, and generation after generation of Jewish people lived in the land, no doubt many of them wondered, perhaps doubted, feared whether God indeed was going to answer his promises. The people were uh, after the Babylonians captured the southern kingdom, the Jewish people up until 1948 never had self-rule, complete self-rule. There was a little time during the Maccabees when they had some freedoms. But here the Jewish people, after the book of Malachi closes and before the book of 
Matthew and Mark and Luke and John open in the New Testament, the Jewish people are downtrodden by the Gentile nations who are all around them. They're, most of the Jews are scattered all over the world, all to the four winds of the earth, to use that phrase. Israel was looking for a deliverer, a king. Israel was looking for a king that would come and deliver them from the political catastrophes that they themselves had created. They were looking for a king that would come and reestablish the glory years of the Davidic kingdom of the Old Testament. They were looking for an anointed leader who would come and destroy the hated Gentile rulers. And by the time of the New Testament, the real head of steam in the hearts of the Jewish people was that the king would come and destroy Rome. It's a pretty sad state of affairs in the land of Israel, the land of God's glory, where Roman boots tread the streets of the holy city, where the Jews can only operate on the Temple Mount under permission of the government, and where their religious officials are appointed by Rome. They're not qualified as priests, they're appointed by Rome. There was, there was political corruption and spiritual corruption all throughout the priesthood at the time of the New Testament. How did God answer? How did God break the silence? He sent another baby. The silence of God was broken again by the cries of a woman giving birth, and the cries of an infant boy. Isn't it amazing how God does things? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts because His ways and His thoughts are so infinitely greater than ours we will never attain unto them. And so that 400 years of silence is broken and we read the words of Luke, and chronologically in the New Testament Gospels, the events of Luke chapter 1 are the first thing that happens in the New Testament era after the book of Malachi has ended in the New Testament. And so we read in Luke chapter 1, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word..." It seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, and that's the Herod we call Herod the Great, or that was called Herod the Great, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They were a standout, godly couple in an age of godless religious Judaism. But verse 7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot 
to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And the angel, excuse me, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be filled, fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
Tonight, I want us to think for a few moments about the angel and the two announcements that the angel brought on, this, on these two occasions, six months apart. And then we're going to look also later in the chapter at the testimonies of some of these people concerning these events. The angel Gabriel does not appear often in Scripture, but when he does, he appears to be the messenger of God, the messenger angel whom God uses for especially important announcements. As we see these two announcements, the first one is regarding the birth of the man we call John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, John the Forerunner of the Lord. Gabriel's second announcement had to do with Jesus' birth, obviously. In both of these events, Gabriel appeared just to one individual, just to one person. And again, you and I, if we had a big announcement to make, we would try to get front page headlines. We'd try to get a little news clip on the 6 o'clock news. We'd try to get it on Facebook or Twitter or something. We try to get the word out to everybody. The angel Gabriel appeared to one individual in each case. In both events, in both occasions, Gabriel had a message about the birth of a son that was going to come. In both of these messages, Gabriel's message told of a miraculous conception. One was miraculous because the two people were past the years of bearing children. The other was miraculous because it was a woman alone, a virgin. But both were miraculous. In both of these occasions, Gabriel gave a name to the son. And in both of these announcements, Gabriel foretold what each son would do. Gabriel is giving prophetic statements here in each case. Both of these announcements included the work of the Holy Spirit. We see that of John the Baptist, filled with the Spirit from the time he was in his mother's womb. Don't ask me how that works. I don't understand. Ask the Lord when you see him. Ask John when you see him. I don't know. Both recipients of these messages had a question for the messenger. And perhaps you've read through this passage and pondered before why Gabriel responded differently to one question than he did to the other. When you figure that one out, you can let me know that too. The only indication in the text is that Zacharias uh, wasn't believing what Gabriel said, which implies that Mary did believe it. She just doesn't understand how was asking for more information. In both cases, in both of these messages... They were each told about the other person who would be coming. Gabriel told Zacharias about his son and about his son being the forerunner of the other child who was coming. And when Gabriel spoke to Mary, he told Mary that her cousin Elizabeth was already six months along by the work of the Lord. And we have the coinciding work of Gabriel in giving this information. There's a little bit of difference between the messages. In the one uh, announcement, Gabriel announces it to a man and the other to a woman. One was married, 
the other engaged. One was a father of the child that would be born. The other was the mother of the other child that would be born. Likewise, there was, while both were miraculous births or conceptions, if you will, one would be, in a sense, a normal human conception. God miraculously gave the husband and wife the ability to have a child. In the other, it was just flat out miraculous because a virgin woman conceived and gave birth. And the other difference between these two announcements is one announces that the first man is simply a predecessor of someone far more important. And John always knew that. John always knew that. And he always did accordingly as he should. <coughs> John is a good man, a good example of a man who knows his station and life and joyfully fills it for God's glory. And so we see these announcements that have been given. We, we've read through them. And sometimes with narrative passages of Scripture, you just read it and what else is there to say? Not that we couldn't and not that most preachers wouldn't spend some more time looking at that. But I'd like to have us move on in the chapter. This is a significantly long chapter of Scripture. <clears throat> and I'd like us to look at the testimonies of some of these people, <clears throat> some of these um, individuals who are involved. <clears throat> and I want you to go back with me just briefly. I'd like us to look at, first of all, what, what the Gabriel said about <clears throat> the person of Christ. These all regarding Christ. What did people say about Christ? Well, in verse 17, Gabriel, referring to John, said, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John came to prepare a people before the Lord. Who's coming? The Lord is coming. That is a term that Gabriel would only have used of God. Gabriel believes that the second child who is coming is going to be the Lord himself. He repeats the same thing or something similar in verse 31 when he talks to Mary. He says to Mary, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall name him Jesus. And most of you, I think, know that that's the same as the Old Testament name Joshua or Yeshua or Hosea. It's a number of different ways to spell it and pronounce it, but it's all the same root word that means Jehovah saves. Jehovah is the Savior. Jehovah is the Savior. What was, what was the name of this boy? Jehovah is the Savior. And you and I, in our English, are so used to names not meaning anything that we just use names as it's just the handle that we use to put a face with something we can identify it with. But in biblical times, the names meant 
what they said. When, <clears throat> when uh, <clears throat> Jacob had a second son by Rachel, his favorite wife, and we won't even go there. <clears throat> you want to look at a dysfunctional family, there's no more dysfunctional family in Scripture than Jacob and his family. You study it out sometime. It's, it's a really a sad case of what happens when someone violates one man and one woman for life in marriage. God used it to bring 12 tribes. Somehow God makes good out of our messes. But the point here that I want to make is Jacob, by Rachel, had a second son, Rachel was on her deathbed. She died after bearing that son. And uh, all the bitterness of life, the competition between her and her sister, all of the, the, the sister getting more glory because she had more sons, she named this boy Benoni. Benoni, son of my sorrow. What a happy day. She wanted to name him a significant name, a name that told a story. And Jacob said, no, his name is Ben-Yamin, the son of my right hand, Yamin. He's my right-hand man. That's what Benjamin means when Gabriel said his name is Jehovah Saves. Everywhere that boy went, what is your name? My name is Jehovah Saves. When people mocked him when he was on the cross, they were mocking Jehovah. That's what Gabriel believed about this boy. This is Jehovah Saves. Wow, what a name. What a wonderful name. What a glorious name. And that's just the beginning. Verse 32 says, He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. That concept of the Son of the Most High and the Most High God and some of those phrases came into more use later in the Old Testament in the time of Daniel. And even Nebuchadnezzar used terms like that to describe the God of Israel was the most high God. Nebuchadnezzar, you remember, learned that lesson the hard way. The most high God, the son of the most high. This is an exalted term of deity. This baby, a baby who's coming, he's going to be the son of the most high God. I don't understand how that can happen. But I believe it. God became flesh. The infinite God of the universe came down in a little eight-pound, seven-pound bundle. How does that work? The God whom the universe cannot contain. And he comes down and becomes a little tiny baby boy who is the son of the most high God. Wow. 
and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. There was nothing that Israel was looking forward to more than for the throne of David to once again come into prominence, for the glory years of the great military leader and king of Israel, David, to once again be in prominence. It would put Israel in the driver's seat. It would destroy the nations around them. David had peace on every border because he fought for it. It would be victory. It would be glory. And Gabriel says, that's who this boy is. Verse 33, he goes on. He will reign over the house of Jacob. He will reign over the whole house of Jacob. All 12 tribes. Not just two, not three, not a remnant, not whatever's left over that comes back from all around the world. He's going to reign over the whole house of Jacob. The whole house of Jacob hasn't been together for a very, very long time. But they will be. Praise God. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Really looking forward to seeing that. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. 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 That's a long, long time. He's talking about a baby. He's talking about a baby who isn't even born yet. He's talking about a baby who isn't even conceived yet. This is who Gabriel believes that he is and knows that he is. He's announcing it. And his kingdom will have no end. In verse 35, he also says, The holy child shall be called the Son of God. And we may have there a reference back to Isaiah. In chapter 9, we have... The statement that a son has been given, a child has been given, the son and child, I think, are a reference to divine and human qualities of the Messiah. This holy child, this set-apart child, will be called the Son of God. God has a son. God has a human son. The second person of the Godhead came down and incarnated that body at conception. And we're talking about the mysteries of eternity and the mysteries of salvation. But I believe every word of it. We can be glad, you can be glad that I don't understand it because if I can understand something, folks, it's not very complicated. It's not very deep. There are a lot of people in this world that believe if they can't figure something out, they're not going to believe it. You talk to them very often. Oh, that doesn't make sense to me, so I'm not going to believe it. God doesn't ask us whether it makes sense to us. God declares what is true, and he says, believe it. The book you have in your hand, you'll never understand it all. Do you believe it? That's what God wants. He wants our faith to respond to truth. And so that's the testimony of Gabriel about who Christ is. Let's look for a moment at the testimony of Zacharias. Now, we have to wait for a while because when we left Zacharias, he was, he was uh, dumb, not uh, in a sense of S-T-U-P-I-D, but dumb in that he could not speak. He gets his speech back. Look at verse 67, and his father 
Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. God's redemption is nigh. It's in the house of David. Praise God. This is when John was born. He gets his voice back, and the first thing he does is to declare this prophecy. He he says it's a fulfillment of prophecy. In verse 70 and 71, he talks about salvation. Down in verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You, my son, will be a prophet, the first one since Malachi. 400 years. 400 years of waiting and waiting and waiting for God to speak. And Israel finally has a prophet. Praise God. These are good days. Better things are coming. Are you excited? I thought so. (laughs) For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zacharias knew who was coming. He knew He understood that his son was the forerunner of the Lord. The Lord is coming back. The Messiah of Israel is on the way, and my son is the one who has been designated by God to announce his coming. Now, what does that mean? That means we're only one lifetime away from the coming of the Lord. Right? The Lord's going to come before John the Baptist is dead. Now, I wish I could tell you in this room tonight that I know that the rapture is going to happen before a certain person dies. It might. But I don't know. But John knew. He knew. He knew. Can you imagine that? An old man, never thinking he was ever going to have children, and then has miraculously has this child, and he knows that this child, his son, is going to grow up and be a preacher, and, and the king of Israel, the Messiah of God, is going to come before my son dies. Wow! What an announcement! What great news! You would think it would be spattered all over the Jerusalem Herald and the Tel Aviv Times. I'm sure there were people that heard and talked about it. We see some of them in verses 65 and 66. But there was no broad sweeping national Repentance and turning and coming and falling down and crying out to God. It, it, even when Jesus was here, it never happened. 
even when Christ was there showing them who he was, proclaiming who he was, it still didn't happen due to the hard hearts and the blindness of the people. Back in verses 65 and 66, when the people... Well, let me go back to verse 59. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. This is John. And they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. That's a pretty good Jewish thing to do. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but his, he shall be called John. And they said, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. Have you ever been in one of those family discussions? <laughs> yeah, they, they can be for some uneasy discussions. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. These kind of things just don't happen. The husband and the wife both agree. That wasn't supposed to come out that way. Let me finish the sentence. The husband and the wife both agree, and the husband hasn't said anything yet. It's kind of like if a you know, if a tree falls in the woods, is there any noise? If a husband is alone in the woods and he says something, is he still wrong? <laughs> so John and Elizabeth haven't even discussed this, and yet they both agree to use the God-given name. At once, Zechariah's mouth is opened, his tongue is loosened, and he begins to speak in praise to God. Wouldn't you love to have heard that? I think we have part of that in the following uh, proclamation. But wouldn't you have loved to have been there and heard that? Fear came upon all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in their minds, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. Now I won't ask you to raise your hand or confession. I don't want to get anybody too depressed. But have you ever, some of you live in your hometown here, but have you ever gone back to your hometown and uh, you're walking down the street or you're somewhere in your hometown and you run across somebody who was one of your teachers in school from many years ago? and you're not so sure you're glad that they remember who you are. <laughs> remember that? And maybe you didn't have that kind of a high school uh, or, or childhood. But how many of us want everybody we've ever known to remember uh, about us? But, but I want you to think about this, because even though we're looking at this first announcement of the New Testament era, it's going to be another 30 years before anything else happens. All right? These are the opening events of the New Testament, but now we're going to go into another 30 years of silence. Because John isn't going to start preaching yet, and Christ isn't going to come on the scene yet for about 30 years. 30 more years 
of silence. And in that 30 years, the people who have known Zacharias and Elizabeth, and they've heard what Zacharias has said about his son John, who are they going to be watching? Little Johnny. Aren't they? They're going to be watching John. He's a little strange. He goes out in the wilderness. He comes back dressed kind of funny. He eats weird things. Johnny's always been kind of a strange child. The same thing is said of Mary and of the baby. Mary kept many things in her heart and pondered them for many years. Think of the people at Nazareth that were watching Jesus grow up, that had Jesus as a student in school. How many of you teachers have ever had a perfect student? How many of you parents have ever had a perfect child? How many of you have ever had a perfect sibling? Can you imagine that? Always being, how come you can't be as good as him? You know, I keep trying. The people of Judea are hearing things. They're being prepared. In a few months, they're going to hear strange tales told by shepherds. They're going to hear of a terrible slaughter in Bethlehem. They're going to be hearing these things. And some of them, by faith, are going to put the pieces of the puzzle together because they know the scriptures. And their hearts are going to be ready for when John starts to preach. And they're going to recall some of these things. Even though it's going to be 30 years of silence. We have also in this passage tonight the testimony of Elizabeth and the testimony of Mary, both of which you have probably looked at before. In verse 43, just notice this statement. (coughs) This is when... Well, let's go ahead and read from verse 39. Now at this time Mary arose and went into a in a hurry to the hill country, a city of Judah and entered into the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. These are some amazing things. And she cried with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come To me, you are the mother of my Lord God Almighty. How? How did she understand? She was filled by the Spirit and made this prophetic declaration. Elizabeth knew who her son was, and she knew who Mary's son was. Way at the beginning, right at the beginning of the story. 
astounding things, astounding things. And again, news travels fast in rural places. Did you know that? I know you think news travels fast in town and in the city, but it's amazing how fast news travels in the country. And the Judean hillsides were abuzz with wagging tongues. Let's just put it that way. It probably wasn't all good conveying of news. No doubt there was some gossip. Have you heard about Zacharias and Elizabeth? Oh, my goodness. They were over the hill. What do you suppose happened? How, how could that be? Strange things are going on down there. I'm sure it wasn't all good. But, but the news, the word, it was penetrating those hills. It was echoing back and forth through the villages and the towns. The news was being spread. No doubt, the news of Mary's shameful condition was also being much talked about. Mary, while we do not worship Mary, she is not what we would theologically say the mother of God. She was the physical mother of a physical child who happened to be the incarnate, enfleshed son of God. She's not the mother of God. She's the mother of the God-man. There's a difference. So we do not worship her, we do not venerate her, and yet among women, there is no woman so privileged as Mary. I suspect also that there are few women as humble. How many of you would be willing to take the shame the embarrassment, the social outcast condition of a young woman found with child in that day. Even though you knew in your heart that you were pure, who's going to believe you? Who's going to believe that? Mary paid a price. Let's not minimize her role. We do not worship her, but she certainly is honored. And we ought also to do the same. We don't have time tonight to go into much more detail, but in verses 46 through 55, we read Mary's statement. Mary's statement is filled with exaltation to the Lord. It is filled with Old Testament references to the humble condition of Israel to the need for a Savior, to the fact that they need the Mighty One to come. It is filled with references and quotes from the Old Testament, and it is a song of redemption. It is a song of victory. It is a song of trust. It is a song of faith that God has answered Israel's prayer. God has sent a Savior. So the other parallel between the end of the 400 years of silence in the Old Testament and the end of the 400 years of silence in the New Testament is that in both cases, God sent 
a mediator for the covenant. He sent Moses to be the mediator of the, of the um, Sinai covenant with Israel. Moses is the one who mediated that covenant. He went up onto the mountain and received the covenant. He came down from the mountain, offered it to the people on God's behalf. They said yes. He went back up on the mountain and said, God, they said yes. And then God said, okay, here's the rules. Here's the Ten Commandments. Take them down. If they're going to be my people, this is how they're going to live. This is how this relationship is going to work. Moses was the covenant mediator between God and Israel. And that's exactly what God did in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came down to mediate the new covenant, the new covenant that he made with his own blood. The covenant of Moses was made with the blood of sheep's sheep and bulls and goats. But the blood of the new covenant is made, the, the, yeah, the blood of the new covenant is the blood of Jesus Christ, the Savior himself, God who came down to become a man so that he might take upon himself all of our sin, our guilt, the penalty of death, the weight and the press and the curse of the wrath of God when he died for us on the cross, so that he might bring us into a new covenant relationship with God. Praise God, we have a way into the presence of God, and that way is a man, the God-man, Jesus, the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, the Son of Man, the Messiah of Israel, the Redeemer of mankind, the one who died on the cross, the coming King and the coming Lord. Any, anything else you want to add in there, you can go right ahead. The list keeps going. All of it began after 400 years of silence with an angel coming to two different people in a private conversation, and it was going to be another 30 years before the unnoticed, quiet birth of a child in a place called Bethlehem. And I think we all know the rest of the story. Praise God. Stand with me, if you will.